It is a snowy Saturday morning, and I am coming to you from Oakland, Nebraska, where the kids are at home watching cartoons, or probably YouTube, because that's what kids watch these days. And my wife is demolishing the bathroom so that we can finally have a toilet upstairs. Uh, I'm recording this uh, monologue intro at the same time that I just finished doing another episode with a guy named Matthew A. Basil. Let me tell you, be on the lookout for that episode. It is a riot. So much fun. This interview is with John Fox of The Book Fox. It is a blog that started back when Google would promote blogs. It is a huge blog. It is a blog that got me my start in the community of writers. I guest blogged for John on a couple of occasions. I might even dig those up and link them in the show notes just for the fun of it in case you want to see little Jody J. Sperling getting his feet wet in the industry. Uh, And otherwise, you just want to dig into the book Fox to find out all kinds of cool stuff about traditional publishing. For the most part, he is digging a little more into self-publishing these days, but it always was about literary journals and kind of the community of traditionally publishing, small presses, things of that nature. I love There's a ton of value and say hello to my pod cat co-host Chewy if you can hear him. He's given a little input this morning. Um, Let's see. What else do I have to tell you? John Fox, he's written a couple of books. I'm going to have links to those in the show notes as well. He's a great writer super friendly guy. He, again, gave me a leg up before anybody else would trust anything I had to say. So very, very grateful to him. Uh, And yes, this is a throwback episode. So if you are a reader who does not write and you listen to this episode, you're going to notice it's really craft-oriented. We talk a lot about marketing and we don't tell a story. Um, Hey, I didn't have any story episodes in the queue, so I couldn't release this as a bonus episode. It is sitting in your Monday slot listen to that hammer go, and you're going to love it, okay? You're just going to love this show. Trust me. Because, well, what else are you going to do? Not trust me? I don't know. I'm kind of in a, a punchy mood this morning, and that's good. Uh, Chewy can tell. He's concerned about me. He says, you're getting a little manic, my co-host friend. Yeah, that's right. All righty. Anyways, let's get to it. You're going to love this show with John Fox. If you've ever watched an author read in public and felt bored, TRBM is the antidote. TRBM is for writers what time-lapse was for painters. Guitar solos and spotlights were for bands. What chainsaws and ice blocks were for sculptors. What does TRBM stand for? Temperamental rascals build masterpieces? Torpid rains bring mildew? Tequila, rye, beer, and mezcal? you decide. This is a podcast about marketing books. You've got a new book out. Uh, it is largely about craft, but you are, I think, a master marketer. You have uh, one of the biggest, if not the biggest, kind of awesome book blogs out there. Um, so talk a little bit about BookFox. I started BookFox way back in 2006 when blogs were very first starting. So I was sort of one of those early adapters that took advantage of Google juice over the last, say, gosh, what's it been? 17 years, 15 years, whatever it is. And um, yeah, I've just been blogging sort of steadily about writing pretty consistently during that whole time. So I've just built up a really big core of of articles about the craft of writing, the business of writing, everything about how to write a book. When you started it, did you think this is what's going to make me famous? 
<laughs> Certainly not. No. I thought, I just want to be a part of the writing community, you know, because mm. that's where the writing community was back then. Everyone yeah. starting blogs and I want, I wanted to join in on that. Um, I, I never even made money on it for the first uh, 11 years. Wow. Until, yeah. Cause I was, I was teaching at the university level, you know, mm-hmm. I was focusing on classes. I was focusing on writing. The blog was just, um, just a way to contribute to the community. And then, you know, when I, when I quit being a professor, I thought, you know, I wonder whether I could make a career out of this blog and lo and behold, uh, yeah. I definitely could. Yeah. That's, that is, that's an amazing story. 11 years is a long time. Really what I'm hearing you say though, is that you were able to do those 11 years because you weren't thinking of it like a career. Had you thought about of it like a career, it may have discouraged you. Is that fair to say? Yeah. Yeah. It would have been very demoralizing. Um, but I was thinking about it more like art. You know, I was thinking about it like this is something I want to do to talk to other writers and to contribute my voice on 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 topics. So it was a little bit more about like writing news and responding to the news of the day. I hadn't yet like mm-hmm. focused specifically on the craft of writing yeah. um, back then. But yeah, it was just it was a joy. It was it was a hobby. That's I, I like that. You don't hear that terribly often. So I think that a huge piece of focus right now is talking about, you know, this writing thing and doing it like a business. And I think there's a a lot of uh, podcasters, there are a lot of bloggers right now who encourage writers to treat it like a business. And yeah. in some ways, if you're in the right situation, what you're saying is treating it like a hobby can actually lead to some really great discovery and enjoyment. Yeah, I feel like treating it a little bit like more like a hobby just leads to more, yeah, pleasure, right? Because there's less, there's less pressure on you to make it into something. But when I started it, it was before the rise of influencers, right? And influencers, Mm -hmm. I feel like are treating like clicks and views as a job, like this is what they're going to do. Um, But yeah, I think sometimes that can get in the way of creating content for the pure joy of it rather than creating content to like, Mm. I want to reach an audience and like convert that into sales and money. Like Mm -hmm. that could be the wrong reason to do it. Yes. I think it is the wrong reason to do it. I'm comfortable saying, I think it is the wrong reason to do it. Not that people aren't very successful with that reason. Um, I have been part of, and I'm not, I'm not particularly shy about this, but I've been part of groups before that have uh, claimed to teach you how to monetize because it's important to me. I do want to be able to support my family and I want to be able to support my family through this kind of umbrella of things that I do with the podcast, my own writing, my blogging and everything. Um, But they always want you to create courses. You know, here's a course that you can do for $20 or here is uh, a mastermind you can be part of for $7,000, whatever it might be. And those yeah. things rarely, not never, but rarely have the value of the money that you're going to spend on them. And I think every time that you spend money to join one and don't get what you were hoping to get out of it, but know you put in the effort, some part of you dies. So I think there's some kind of influencers <laughs> that are preying on our deepest desires. <laughs> yes, I think that's true. I think that's true. But I mean, you could say, I mean, writing a book you spend mm-hmm. a lot of money, especially if you're indie publishing, even if you're mm-hmm. not indie publishing, even with a traditional publisher, you spend a lot of years and effort mm-hmm. to get to that place, whether it's MFA or taking writing courses and all this stuff. It's yeah. not a particularly lucrative career path, mm-hmm. um, but you know, there's a lot of you know, pleasure and reward in other areas. 
Yeah, that, I, I like I like where this conversation is going. So my my thought process is I started writing, and, and a lot of people know my story. You may know part of my story, but um, I never thought about the money. I figured if you wrote a great book, the rest would basically take care of itself. You would attract an agent. I even went so far as to at least privately doubt the idea that people really needed to, you need, you needed to research your agent. I was like, if you have a brilliant book, any agent will want to represent you. That was my original belief. Mm-hmm. I was like, no one would turn down Hemingway, right? No one. And that's just, I'm picking like one of the biggest names I can think of, but no one would turn down Bologna or Dennis Johnson or anything like that. Cause those, those guys just are brilliant and you would have to know that not the case. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's definitely, I used to talk to Kyle Miner about this. He's like, you know, there's a large part of luck mm. that plays into your writing career. You know, it's yeah. like this one agent just happens to see you when they're in a good mood and happens to like want to represent you or mm-hmm. this agent sees you in a bad mood and decides not to represent you. It's there's a lot of serendipity yeah. that comes into it. So it's not just about hard work and quality. There, mm-hmm. There's luck involved. I like what I like the word serendipity there too. By the way, Kyle Miner, I love Kyle Miner. Praying Drunk is an amazing book. And if you're listening really and you want to pick up a copy of it, do. He's not really yeah. writing much anymore though, right? He's doing more visual oh. art at this point. Yeah, he was with he was writing screenplays for a little bit and then he sort of dropped off the face. I haven't really heard anything from him in a while, but uh, yeah. I agree about Praying Drunk. It's fantastic and yeah. he's a he's a wonderful wonderful writer. He is really good. Yeah. Um, so you you use the word serendipity. And I, I was just writing about this this morning um, in one of my blog posts. But this idea that uh, you have time, preparation, opportunity, that is really the matrix that creates luck. And it's not like this is a, a novel idea. I think it's thrown about all over the place. The problem is, is that you can put yourself in front of more opportunities by doing certain things. So you didn't necessarily think of it this way. But when you started BookFox, uh, that was kind of an opportunity multiplier. You created the ability for yourself to be seen more often than you would have been had you just been writing and only querying agents. Do you feel like there are things that you can do that you love to do to intentionally increase your luck by amplifying either the amount of time you're exposed, the opportunities you have to be seen, so on and so forth? I actually talk about this in my book, The Lynchpin Writer, because Lynchpin Writer is not just about lynchpin moments in your book, right? Getting the the first paragraph right or getting the end of the chapter right or getting the description of your character right. It's also about lynchpin moments in your writing life. Like, what can you do in your writing life to put you in the path of luck, as you said, right? Yeah. Uh, to put to put you in a serendipitous moment where something could happen. And it's, yeah. it's about going to conferences. It's, it's about, you know, uh, joining online groups of writers. It's about joining a book club. It's like doing all of these things that contribute to your writing life. And those end up being your linchpin moments that, you know, spur you on to the rest of your writing career. Mm-hmm. It's beautiful. You you talk about conferences, and I think that one of my uh, maybe I'll maybe I'll call it a regret, but it's almost as if it's out of my control. I desperately want to be a successful full time novelist. I want to be known. I really do want those things, and I'm pretty comfortable saying that. But that level of desperation means every time I go to a conference, whether it's AWP or just some Nebraska conference with local Nebraska writers, I'm always wondering: Is there someone here that I can meet that? can help me move forward. And that level of desperation makes me a real pathetic guest at any of those, <laughs> those events. Um, so no. <laughs> no, it's true. Absolutely. Really? It's true. Oh. Yes, it does. Because I, I'm, I'm hyper aware of how I'm coming across. So I get even more awkward than I normally mm. am. 
in your experience, when you go, do you have expectations of trying to capitalize on those moments or are you just like, I'm going to be my best me and whatever happens, happens? Okay. Uh, I have been called a platonic flirt at conferences. <laughs> <laughs> Meaning, All right. I, I come with zero expectations for something happening, okay. but I just talk talk like crazy. I just meet everyone and I'm super chatty and I don't know what's going to happen. Like, I don't know. I just talk to people and I, I, you know, I'm an extrovert, so I enjoy talking to people. So I meet as many people as possible. I have, I have zero like list of things like, Oh, I want to accomplish this or I want to accomplish this. Mm. None of that. I'm like, I'm going to meet people. I'm going to have a good time because these are fellow writers and it's going to be great. And if something Mm -hmm. happens out of that, then, then wonderful. Right. Um, You know, but you just, you have a good time. You have the best kind you can. Oh, I I knew this one writer. They went to a conference and they skipped every single panel and every single reading and everything. They, they met up with a good friend of theirs and they just drank through the whole conference, but they talked about books as well. Right. The whole time they were drinking for three days. That is a lifelong writing friend right there. Exactly. Remember that time we went to that conference and drank straight for everything. Yeah. And skipped every single panel and skipped absolutely everything. But you know, that's a memory you can't you can't skip over. Like that's a bond right. that you can't skip over. You're not going to get that from like going to the conference floor and be like, "Are you interested in my manuscript?" You know, it, <laughs> exactly. It's a, different, it's a different type of relationship you're building. It really is. And I'm thinking about conferences and my, I've, I've been to AWP a couple of times uh, more during my, my college years, but um, like I would go and I would walk around all of the tables with the literary journals thinking like, what if I meet somebody who then is excited to read one of my short stories and now will be published. And it would like, they're inundated with a bunch of people either looking for free goodies, like the shot glasses that Kyle gave away for praying drunk or, or, <laughs> you know, some kind of bookmark or a free copy of a journal. And everybody is kind of like me, need, 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 want, want, want. I think that's a terrible opportunity to, to try to get your foot in the door, so to speak. But yeah, if you go thinking I'm going to find a buddy and hang out and drink the whole time and talk about books. Yeah. Walk away with one friend. Um, so did you, did you do your MFA? I, I don't think I know that. So I did an MA at New York university that was creative okay. based. I wrote a novel for that. And then I did it's actually called an MPW. It was a master of professional writing, but it's shaped exactly like an MFA at the university of of Southern California. So I say I have an MA and an MFA, basically a a terminal degree in creative writing and an MA degree as well. That's right. You said you taught, so I should have known just by deduction. Um, Talk to me a little bit about your feelings uh, about the degree, because one of the things that I'm actively doing right now is trying to catch students inside of the programs and talk to them about making a business out of their writing. I think that one thing is highly neglected in the academic environment is the opportunity to have a lifestyle as a writer. It truly does exist, but it's kind of ignored or neglected. Um, is. is that your experience or or how how was your experience going through the process? Yeah. Um, speaking of connections, I met at AWP. I met a director of a writing conference or a writing uh, MFA program in Texas, and he would have me Skype into his class. He really admired what I was doing. Wow. He would have me Skype into his class, or I guess Zoom into his class, yeah. and um, and uh, talk to his students about the business of being a writer, like how you make money. And I was talking wow. to them about courses and talking to them about editing. And I thought it was an incredible service that he was doing to his students no to be kidding. like, look. 
all this writing crafts is important. Like publishing is important. Like you, but you also need to know like how to earn money as uh, a literary agent or as an editor, Mm -hmm. like in the ecosystem. So I tried to help them out the best that I could. And and I like that Mm -hmm. you're focusing on that too. That's an incredible service to do for people in MFA programs. Yeah, I, I'm I'm pretty passionate about helping. I I sometimes will joke that my my MFA is basically a six year or seventy eight thousand dollar friend is what I got out of it. So I got one really close friend that I keep in touch with. There's a couple people that I occasionally talk with, but there's one guy that I just hung close with for all these years, and that's that's an expensive friendship. Um, <laughs> <laughs> there there are elements of the process I do wish they would change. That's amazing that that professor did that. I've not heard about anything quite like that before. Yeah, I wish I think more MFA programs should do that. I know I know some MFA programs like the one here in Irvine, they tend to be a little bit more insular, like they don't mm-hmm. want to talk to agents, like they just want to work on the craft of writing. Right. Um and that might be good for a while, but like towards the end of your MFA, mm-hmm. you got to prepare kids to like go out into the right. real world and I say kids loosely you know i mean i've prepared these writers for like okay what's the next step not just in terms of not all of you are going to publish some gigantic novel that earns a million dollar advance Mm -hmm. you know most of you are going to toil in obscurity and like five or six years later publish a book so what are you going to do in the meantime yeah Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it, it is going to take time from an MFA unless you're in one of the very few select programs, you're likely not going to walk out of the campus with a literary agent or a book deal in hand. Um, it's just yeah. rare. There's, I think, three programs I can think of where you should maybe expect that to happen um, and a total of 25 students. So <laughs> yeah. uh, you and I first met uh, through my $78,000 friend or $84,000 friend, whatever the total money is, he actually told me about your blog. I found your blog. Um, I checked out your list of journals you mm-hmm. used to publish. And I think you still do a list of literary journals based on like their, well, you tell me what, what would you call that? Not necessarily their superiority, yes. but there's, there's metrics that you're using. Yeah, the best American short stories, how many times the That's journal right. had appeared, either the story itself or in the little addendum at the end. That's and right. And I'd give extra points if the story was published and like little or smaller points if it was just mentioned in the end point. And so I did it over the last the last 10 years. And so I came up with a numerical system. And yes, it's it's faulty as all ranking systems are, but it just gave people a reference point like oh, should I be submitting to this, you know, number third journal in the world? Like, is that out of my, out of my batting range? Or should I focus on something that's like really quality, but that, Mm -hmm. you know, a little bit more accessible to newer writers? Yeah. I love that you say that because when I was running into that list, my first thought was start at the top and work my way down, um, which I think can be really discouraging. There's a podcaster I love. Andy J. Pizza does creative pep talk. He talked just recently about um, kind of dressing like the enemy or finding another way in the door. Um, and mm-hmm. so that's kind of your idea of starting at the bottom of of that list of people who, yes, they're getting the recognition of best American short stories, but maybe they're more accessible than the New Yorker. Yeah. They're actually looking for new writers, you know, like the top 10. Yeah. Unless you're going to one of those top MFA programs that have literary agent, they're just not reading slush pile in the same way. Mm -hmm. You know, you're beating your head against the door and you think, Oh, I'm a terrible writer. No, they pick one out of 10,000 manuscripts a year and publish it. You know, it's just, you want odds where you're competing one against 300 manuscripts or something, which Mm. the lower level journals, they still have those type of odds. Guess what? That's still a huge privilege to be chosen out of the top 
a couple yeah. hundred stories. So like, don't yeah. be thinking you're like shirking off. You're just giving yourself a chance. Yeah. So I'm, I'm curious, uh, as far as linchpin moments go, if you're submitting to a literary journal, and this goes for anybody who thinks that they're going to self-publish their book, or if they want to pursue traditional publication, getting published in the literary journals is a great way to establish some credentials. So nobody ignore this just because you have the option to publish yourself. Um, you should, yeah, you should still seek out publishing in journals. Um, what would be kind of a linchpin uh, approach to publishing in journals. We've, we've kind of outlined the idea of starting smaller, but how, how would you differentiate yourself with the submission itself? Um, I mean, I think just careful preparation, like getting the story to the point where you're confident this is the best thing you have to send out. And then just sending out in batches, you know, I'd send out to mm. 10 journals at a time, see what sort of feedback you get after three or four months, then send out to another, another 10 journals. Um, and, and roughly the same sort of uh, quality of journals too. You don't want to be sending like to the very best journals and then to the very worst journals at the time. Cause mm -hmm. if the worst journal accepts you, you're going to be like, Oh man, like yeah. it was still out at that place. Uh, you know, you have regrets. So I think mm -hmm. sending to the same like category of journals um, yeah. is a wise idea as well. Um, but yeah, I mean the, I think the linchpin moment is just when you get that first acceptance or when you get a, yeah. you know, the, the journal you really want, it's like, man, I put in the hard work. Mm -hmm. um, I used to be part of a writing group where we would have a, a, a points competition, like who could submit the most and who would write oh, the wow. most over the month. And then if you won, like you got some sort of special prize or mm -hmm. if you lost, then, you know, you had to do something humiliating. It, I don't know. It was all for fun and games, but sure. it was a fun way to like encourage people send work out, like just yes. get your work out there. Right. Yeah. Gamifying is, is really important. I hate the word, but the, the, <laughs> the the practice is is really important. I'm curious, yeah. do you think that there's any benefit in getting to know editors? Uh, what if you what if you tried to go through the back door and instead of submitting your work, what if you offered to read for a journal or um, any kind of creative ideas like that? Would it be worth the long game to really get to know an editor so that you could uh, benefit from nepotism? You don't read for a literary journal because you're hoping for nepotism. You read because it's one of the best yeah. educations you can have. That's very true. When you read for a literary journal, you read the slush pile. It is, it is the best education you can have. And like, you realize people aren't rejecting you because of some personal reading reasons or mm -hmm. for, I don't know, they didn't really give my story a chance. You burn through, you know, 30 stories in an hour. You're like, ah, this is not good. Or like, this is okay, but it's just not right for the journal. Or, you know, like you really see a huge range of stories. And I think everybody submitting to literary journals should take some sort of spell being a slush pile reader. Yeah. <laughs> it will be the best thing you ever do. As far as nepotism, I mean, I was just talking to a client the other day. And she said, oh, I have this personal connection. They're a very high up editor at one of the big five mm -hmm. publishers. I submitted my children's book to her. And, you know, she politely declined because it wasn't the right, right. book. You know, I mean, yeah. I, the, these publishers, I mean, their their entire careers are staked upon picking the right mm -hmm. book um, absolutely, or, or picking the right story. So they're not going to do it as like a favor to you. I, oh I yeah, definitely not. That works. What it gets you, all that it gets you is a fair read. Yeah. Right. Right. Exactly. Pile, they probably won't even read your story most of the time, but mm -hmm. if you have a personal relationship, they'll give you a fair read. Yeah. And most of the time they'll still reject you. Even if you have a great relationship with them. So right. ultimately exactly. it comes down to the book. 
I agree. Yeah, I, I think I, I agree with you. And I think that nepotism is definitely at play in the best possible way. So that's another thing is I'm trying to get people who listen to this podcast to get really comfortable with the idea that there's nothing wrong with nepotism. It exists because people have done the hard work of being friends. We see it take its ugly head like and, and be really nasty when people do do favors. And it does happen. There's no question that that favors are done. However, like you said, most of the time, nepotism is simply you did the hard work of building a trusting relationship. And so when you have something worth showing, those people will look at it fairly. I read for for Slush, um, for Willow Springs. I'm not proud of what I did when I was there, but I would read the first paragraph looking for a reason to reject. And if the first paragraph didn't catch me, I wouldn't read on because there's too many stories to read. And I know that my classmates were doing the same thing. So I mean, I would read like the first page or page mm-hmm. and a half. Um, right. Unless it was the first paragraph was really, really bad. And then I set it aside, but yeah, mm-hmm. you're not, you're not reading the whole thing. Like you can tell pretty yeah. quick, man. Right. You, can, you read a page and you're like, nope, just mm-hmm. there's, there's 0% chance. This is going to get better or this is going to make it in. Yeah. You I know. think reading with a, with a, uh, an eye to rejecting somebody though, it does. I think it does filter down ones that can be really good. Uh, I remember when we did the contest, I decided at that point. So Willow Springs had a contest once a year um, and you had to pay to submit through submittable. And um, I, I actually read every one of those stories because in my mind, I suddenly thought I have submitted so many of these contests and it would mm-hmm. piss me off if somebody threw my story out that I paid to have read. So I thought I'm going to change what I'm doing and I'm going to read these stories. And there were several that I know for sure I would have kicked out the door had it Mm -hmm. been just regular slush. And I'm not going to speak for everybody, but I don't think I'm unique in that way. I think that I might be somewhere in the middle of the pack. Um, Yeah. So no, that's very, that's very generous of you. And I think. (laughs) um, Thanks. No, I, I say that like sincerely. And I, and I think about, doing unto others as others, as I want others to do unto me, like as well. Right. I mean, when I'm, when I'm editing, I I'm thinking if I had written this novel, what sort of feedback and what sort of Mm. love would I be wanting from the editor? You know? Yeah. And I don't mean like buttering them up. Like I always say truthful things, but like making sure that I'm careful with it, making sure that I'm thoughtful with their manuscript, trying to give the absolute Mm -hmm. best advice that I can. Um, yeah, that's really that's really important. That, that that's what it means to be a good literary citizen is to treat others as fairly as possible mm-hmm. uh, when they bring you your writing. Yeah, but I'd like to go back to what you said about nepotism. Yeah. I'd like to make a distinction between maybe a, a, a harder or more illegitimate form of nepotism and what I'd mm-hmm. call like say soft nepotism. I think yeah. when people use the word nepotism, there's this connotation like something unjust is happening. Um, and, and in right. some cases, yes, that that's true, right? Maybe exactly. this manuscript that wasn't that great, it gets put through because they have a great platform. Well, I mean, platform sort of part of it, you know, or, mm-hmm. or they just knew somebody that got them in the door and got them the fair read and then they get that they get published. Yes. But I think there's often like a, some sort of softer form of nepotism where it's just like, you've been in the community a long time, you mm-hmm. know, a lot of people, you mm-hmm. happen to know somebody who knows somebody, that person ends up reviewing your book. Because yes. you got an in that way. Well, that's actually how communities should work. Like exactly. that's how societies should work. And when you exactly. put in 20 years in an industry, you you should have relationships that help you in that industry. There's nothing yes. necessarily fundamentally wrong about that. But <laughs> what we want to avoid, both us and the community as a whole, is sort of like 
doing favors for people, you know, yeah. just because we know them. Yeah. Play, play this back folks, go back like a minute there and re-listen to everything that John just said, because that is really the key. And that is exactly what I'm talking about. Um, and I do think it starts at the relationship because you could glaze over what I'm saying about forming a relationship with an editor, but I guarantee you, had I not reached out to you, and this is just pulling from, from our, our past connection to each other, which I don't even think is actually a particularly strong connection, but it exists. Uh, I reached out and I said, I love this list that you do. I'd like to help in X, Y, Z ways because I think it's amazing. And that was sincerely felt. Had I not researched you and read and dived into your blog and reached out to you, there was no chance you were going to stop what you were doing to be like, yeah, sure. You know, write an article for me, write, write a, a blog post for me. It was because I cared about you. And that, that was sincerely felt. That's nepotism. I mean, it's me caring about you. If I, if I'm just doing a cold pitch and I'm reaching out to every blogger and being like, I know about this. Do you need a blog article? Even if someone says yes, it's almost useless other than SEO because that post doesn't build a relationship. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, I, com- I completely agree. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about the other, because you do uh, with your blog, I think reach hundreds of thousands. You've reached many, many millions of readers at this point. Most people who are going to start a blog right now are up against 2 billion other blogs. So it's a fairly saturated market at this point. Um, if someone wanted to start a blog as a way to market themselves, uh, coming from an expert, what are some things they can do today? Let's assume that they're quality writers. I would not recommend starting a blog today. <laughs> I, just, that, I mean, if, if you're looking for a platform, I don't think that's yeah. the right move forward. Like uh, right now, what we're seeing is the um, corporatization of, mm. of, of Google results. Mm-hmm. And so even in the writing sphere, you have these giant corporations like Masterclass and Readsy, mm. and they're gobbling up all of the, the top 10 spots. Mm. And so if you're, if you're a single person writing a blog, unless it is extremely niche, extremely mm-hmm. niche, um, that I'd say there's almost a 0% chance of you getting a traction to appear mm-hmm. across search results. Now, what you could do is more of a personal approach. Like mm-hmm. you start building like a, a group of core readers who keep on coming back and coming back, mm-hmm. um, but you're not going to get like major Google traffic from people searching key terms because all those key terms have been set upon with companies with a hundred people and they write full time and they just like, they own all of them now. Mm. So So if if someone was starting off, I would say like, you need to go where, where someone starting off still has an advantage where a single person Mm. has an advantage. And that would be something like TikTok, for example. Mm. Um, uh, You know, you need to be an early adapter to whatever the new technology is. That's what I did with blogging back in 2006. Right. So yeah. find the new technology where you can be an early adapter, start your career in that new space using that new technology and build it from there. I like what you're saying. Um, I think it makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, have you heard of Substack? Yeah. Yeah. So what are your thoughts on Substack? I think, yeah, that would be a great place to do it. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. Um, I feel like Substack is what blogging was back in 2006 in a way, because mm-hmm. there's a whole literary conversation going on with all these literary Substack writers. Yeah. Um, and, and I read like Jane Friedman's, uh, mm-hmm. if you know her newsletter yes. um, about the business of writing, um, then you'll see that she's constantly referencing people talking about the literary scene on Substack. Substack. Yeah. So um, 
yeah, that, that's a great way to sort of build an audience that's devoted to you. I'm really curious about how they're going to go. I uh, I saw Substack. I heard about it um, on a podcast, and I thought I need to I need to actually get into this. I've never been a huge fan of of blogging. Um, I don't think that this is true. I've just never tested myself and never needed to. But I've always felt like I only have so many words that I can write in a day, and so I want to save my best words for my fiction. Um, mm-hmm is absolutely the opposite of what I'm doing right now. I'm writing less fiction than I ever have before trying to create a platform and a brand, blah, blah, blah. Mm. But I decided to start a Substack because I thought if I have one chance, I have to get into a place where Google isn't the king, where Google doesn't determine if I'm popular or not. And Mm. if I can get people on Substack to build a relationship with me, to value my articles, to be interested in what I'm doing, they recommend me. And now I'm driven by people that I admire who want other people to read me. Yeah. Uh, so it is a really cool place to be on your corner of the internet, having established your blog, does Google still drive you or do you find that you are competing in ways that you dislike? I feel like, yeah, Google's still driving me. I still get a lot of, a lot of hits to the website, but I'm, I'm seeing a sea change toward the mm. corporatization of the space. And, uh, you know, a person like me with, you know, I have guest bloggers, I have like several people on my team, just can't compete with these giant companies. So yeah. I'm sort of seeing, seeing the writing on the wall, the death of like the personal blog, except in very niche wow. areas. Uh, and that's why I'd say like social media, you're a face, you can establish an instant connection or Substack. Mm-hmm. like it's very intimate, long form writing that comes right into their inbox. Uh, that's That's the right place to build a devoted audience right now. Yeah. Hey, as an aside, my kids are bouncing up all downstairs. They they have no school today, uh, small town, but can you hear it on your side? Can you hear it coming through the audio? No. Okay. I, right. I mean, I haven't heard it before this point and I can't hear it now. Okay, good. Just wanted the to make sure. The children, huh? Oh man, I'm telling you. Yeah, exactly. Kids are, kids are something that I never would have uh, expected in terms of like, you love them so, so much. And they are by far the hardest thing that, that like I've ever done just like by exponential measures. I completely agree. <laughs> yes. Yeah. You never think like being a parent will be the most difficult thing in your life, but it most certainly no. is. Exactly. Yeah. And I had people warn me that uh, getting married would be that they're like, you will have to sacrifice yourself every day. And, you know, you might not always be friends, but you're always a team. The kids will be the apple of your eye. And it's been like a complete flip of that. Like my wife and I are best friends. I couldn't do what I'm doing without her. Her understanding and support is a linchpin. (laughs) Nice. No, I I have the same thing, right? Like marriage seems really easy compared to raising children. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So let's talk now about your book, um, because I want I want people who are listening to have an opportunity and any kind of services that you do offer. Um, so if there's a listener right now who's a perfect fit to work with you at any capacity, they know what you offer. Well, I would say, you know, check out the Lynchpin Writer, see if we're a good fit for each other. Um, I've gotten a lot of great reviews, say, authors saying it's helped them a lot with certain parts of their novel, both to write the novel and to revise the novel. So that's a nice uh, buy-in to sort of get acquainted with me. You can also go onto my website, uh, bookfox, thejohnfox.com, sign up for a newsletter. I usually send out about one a week, um, just on the writing craft, talking about writing. Uh, you can check out any of my nine courses. I have courses for writers from sentences to dialogue, to writing your, uh, novel, all sorts of different stuff. So check out those, see whether those are right for you. And then I do sometimes do a developmental editing. So if you're looking for copy editing, I have someone else on my team that does copy editing, correcting punctuation. Whatnot. 
I focus on big picture, like uh, let's tweak this chapter to make it better. Or mm. um, I talk big picture about characters and, and, and dialogue and the structure and pacing and all that sort of good stuff. And I'll write like, uh, you know, eight page essay basically about your novel talking about what you're doing well, because I think that's important to know, like yes. you're definitely succeeding at a lot of things. And also here are some places where you could change things. Yeah. I was asking on Twitter today, a question that I'm very interested in, and I have a pretty firm belief about myself for is, uh, you know, if you, if you receive consistent encouragement and praise, will it make you a better writer? And I mean, I, I'm getting predictably a lot of people answering, like, the only thing that makes you a better writer is reading and writing. Well, yeah, that's true. You got to do that stuff. But I, I would defy anybody to set two people doing the exact same things of reading and writing. One is getting encouraged and the other is being criticized. I almost guarantee you one will make it through and the other one will eventually wilt. It's very difficult to succeed uh, in the face of, of a bunch of criticism. So telling people what they're doing right is profound. I think it's important to have a mix, right? You need that mm -hmm. encouragement and you need that criticism. I cannot count how many times people I've done editing for have said to me, I have learned more from this feedback than I have in like nine writing courses and you know, mm -hmm. four workshops and like, like, just this, what you wrote about my story was the most educational thing I have ever done in my entire writing career. Mm. Like they yeah. always tell me that I'm like, yeah, it's very personalized feedback. And I'm like giving you the craft that's specific to what you need for this book. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, it's, I'm, not, I'm, I'm going to say it for you because I don't even know if you'll agree, but I believe this to be true is that if that's the case and that is the case that people are getting more from your developmental edits, uh, then I would spend my money on a developmental editor like you over going to an MFA at this point. So I'll put that out there. That, oh, that. Thank you. That is yeah. very kind of you. <laughs> I believe it to be true. So everybody go get the Lynchprint writer and, um, Check out thejohnfox.com. I do want to ask you, actually, as a last thing, I've always wondered, is it just because you didn't know it was going to be BookFox or why thejohnfox.com when it redirects to BookFox? Because a Chinese company has been squatting on BookFox for the last 17 years, demanding huge amounts of money that I'm not willing to pay. <laughs> Unreal. I should have yep. I should have guessed that because I've tried before and I'm like, I can't find the website. <laughs> <laughs> if you Google it, it'll turn up. But if you go yeah. to bookfox.com, it's some, not the one. You know, squatter yeah. squatter just trying to take it yeah we'll get him we'll get it <laughs> thank you for your time yeah jody it was a pleasure yes thank you for listening to trbm the theme music was provided by the ever talented christopher talon and hey if you liked what you heard share this show with other readers because what's the point of telling stories if nobody's listening 